1927, Dr. Cecil Cook said, quote, Everything necessary must be done to convert the half-caste into a white citizen, end quote. The term half-caste was used during Dr. Cecil's time for the mixed-race people in Australia. More specifically, those with one Aboriginal parent and one white parent. In most cases, the white parent was a father who had children outside of marriage, often by way of what amounted to rape. As was all too often in the early 20th century, the white government saw other races as subpar to their own. As you can probably understand, that term is considered quite offensive for many people today, so I'm going to avoid using it from here on out. I wanted to use that quote, though, because I think it helps sum up the Australian government's position during what we now know as the Stolen Generation. Dr. Cook's official title was the Chief Protector of the Aborigines, and the Stolen Generation refers to the six decades between 1910 and 1970 when the Australian government forced mixed-race children to be taken from their families. It was something a lot of people didn't know much about for a long time. That started to change in 1996 when an author named Doris Pilkington Garimara helped uncover a story during those years that you've probably never heard before. A story that almost certainly would have been lost to history if it weren't for Doris's efforts to save it. It's a story we're going to learn more about today. I'm Dan Lefebvre, and this is Based on a True Story. Before we start our story today, let's set up our game. Two truths and a lie. If you're new to the show, here's how it works. I'm about to say three things. Two of them are true, which means one of them is a lie. Are you ready? Okay, here they are. Number one. Gracie didn't return to Jigalong with Molly and Daisy. Number two. Molly and Daisy were at the Moore River settlement for years before they escaped. Number three, Molly walked from Moore River to Jigalong not once, but twice in her lifetime. Got him? Okay, now as you're listening to our story today, you'll find the two facts scattered somewhere throughout the episode, and then by a simple process of elimination, you'll know which one is a lie. And if you want the answers, hang out until the end of the episode and we'll do a recap to see how well you did. Oh, and while I've got you here, I started creating some fun little mini bonus episodes. Basically, the concept of those is to take an entirely fictional movie and look at how it treats history. For example, we've already looked at some of the historical elements in movies like Back to the Future, The Rocketeer, and The Pirates of the Caribbean. Was there ever such a thing as a pirate's code like we saw in The Pirates of the Caribbean? Did the Nazis really try to build a jetpack like we saw in The Rocketeer? And that's the kind of stuff that we'll look at on those mini episodes. Check them out, and you can get access to new ones as they're released by becoming a producer of the show over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Once again, that's basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. All right, now let's get to our story as we compare history with the 2002 Australian film, 
rabbit-proof fence. The movie begins with some text on screen that sets up our story. We're in Western Australia in the year 1931. For a hundred years, the Aboriginal people have resisted the white settlers as they crept further and further into their lands. Then, a special law called the Aborigines Act added a new level of complexity as it allowed the Australian government the ability to legally control the lives of Aborigines. More specifically, according to this opening text in the movie, that power in Western Australia goes to Mr. A. O. Neville as the chief protector of Aborigines. That is all true. Opening this episode, we heard a quote from Dr. Cecil Cook. He was the chief protector of Aborigines for the Northern Territory. So Mr. A. O. Neville was his counterpart in Western Australia. Oh, and his full name was Auber Octavius Neville. Probably why they called him A.O. He's played by Kenneth Brennan in the movie. The mention of the Aborigines Act is correct as well, although the movie doesn't mention which one it's referring to. You see, there were multiple acts that all put laws into place for how the Australian government would handle the Aboriginal people. There was the Aboriginal Girls Protection Act of 1844. That law's full name was, quote, an act to prevent the enticing away of girls of the Aboriginal race from school or from any service in which they are employed, end quote. Basically, that made it illegal to remove Aboriginal girls from either school or work without the consent of either the region's protector or the girl's employer. Oh, and even though I said the word work was used in the terminology, it wasn't like the jobs you and I have today. Basically, it was servitude or straight-up slavery. Then, the rights over more than just the girls were given away by the Aborigines Protection Act of 1886, which established a protection board to appoint protectors. They, in turn, got to involve themselves in the details of the lives of those they claimed to be protecting. Then, the Aborigines Act of 1897 further expanded the government's power over the Aboriginal people as it gave more rights to the Protection Board and allowed governors to create new protectors. Those three acts were then repealed and rolled into the Aborigines Act of 1905, which actually went into effect in April of 1906. It was this law that formed the position of Chief Protector and instantly made that Chief Protector the legal guardian of every Aboriginal child aged 16 years and younger. Not only that, but it specifically allowed for the chief protector to authorize detaining the children in either institutions or in servitude. Think about that for a moment. The government just made up a law one day that said any child under the age of 16 could be forced into a boarding school where They'd be taught the ways of civilized society. In other words, how to be more like the white society that had moved into their lands. Or they'd be forced into work. Basically slavery. I'm sure it's no surprise that I believe we can learn from history. And that includes my own personal history too. You know how your phone will remind you of photos that you took 
on this day a few years ago? Well, I just had one pop up and it reminded me of a time a few years ago when my daughter and I were heading out on a four hour drive to a state park. And it couldn't have been more like 10 minutes into the drive when my check engine light turned on and my car just started shaking really, really bad. Needless to say, we ended up spending the rest of the day at the mechanic instead of the park. Not only was that day ruined, but all of a sudden I had a huge unexpected bill to figure out how to pay. And I really wish I had known about today's sponsor then because that would have relieved a lot of stress. Earn In helps alleviate financial anxiety by giving you access to your pay as you work instead of waiting for the next paycheck. You can get up to $100 a day or up to $750 per pay period. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up, and it'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank. Subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. What you might find even more surprising about this law is when it was repealed. That happened on July 1st, 1964. Heading back to the movie's timeline, we're introduced to the three girls who are the heroes of our story right after seeing the movie's title. We see Jason Clark's character, Constable Riggs, and another policeman watching from the bushes as Everlyn Sampy's character, Molly, catches a lizard. Alongside Molly, we also see Daisy, who's played by Tiana Sansbury in the movie, and Gracie, who's played by Laura Monahan. In this scene in the film, the three girls are surrounded by their friends and family. Then, Constable Riggs's horse snorts, alerting someone to the presence of the two policemen. Molly, hide the children. That whole scene is made up for the movie, but it implies something that's true. By that, what I mean is, we can see in the movie the way Molly takes Daisy and Gracie and hides them without a word. That's a drill they've done before, and as we already learned, sadly, that sort of thing happened. Children taken from their families, all in the name of protection, the government is doing them a favor by ripping them from their homes. And that leads us up to the next part in the movie where we see the three children get taken away. According to the movie, it happens when we see a building with a sign that says Jigalong Depot on it. Constable Riggs is inside. Outside the building, Molly, Daisy, and Gracie are chatting with a man who's working on the rabbit-proof fence. All of a sudden, a vehicle zooms up. Constable Riggs gets out. Gracie, a woman shouts, and the three girls start running. Riggs hops back into the car and speeds along after them, catching up with the running girls in no time. Maud, who's played by Ningali Lawford in the film, is Molly's mom and sobs, screams, and cries as she's forced to witness Riggs 
put her kids in the car. All the while, Riggs is holding up some paperwork saying, It's the law! As Riggs' car drives away with the three girls inside, all we can hear is Maud and Molly's grandmother nearby howling and crying. It's a disturbing scene for any parent, to say the least. Sadly, the result of the three girls being taken away from their homes is true, but it didn't happen that way. Instead, when Constable Riggs showed up at their camp one morning, everyone knew why he was there. They dreaded it, but what could they do? Molly, Daisy, and Gracie weren't the first children to be taken away from their families. And sadly, they wouldn't be the last. They knew why he was there. With heavy hearts and plenty of tears, the girls succumbed to their fate. Molly and Gracie rode Constable Riggs's horse out of the camp, but Daisy wasn't there. So, after taking the two girls back to the Jigalong Depot so he could get his car, Riggs went back out in search of Daisy. He was driving his car this time because he was going to take the girls to their final destination. Now, Riggs searched for hours before finally finding Daisy. Even though Molly and Gracie being taken away didn't look like what we saw in the movie, Daisy's might have looked a little more like what we saw in the film, with her friends and family in the camp wailing and crying as she was put into a car. Meanwhile, her family was forced to deal with something they just couldn't understand. Their children being taken away from them. Well, sure, when the policemen came to take their children, they knew why they arrived there, but it doesn't mean they really understand why it's happening in the first place. So they understand why, but don't at the same time, if that makes sense. Back in the movie, the next major plot point happens when we see the girls arrive at their destination. The text on screen says it's the Moore River Native Settlement, about 1,200 miles south of Jigalong. That's about 1,930 kilometers, by the way. Although, to give some geographical context from a bigger city, Moore River is located about 84 miles or about 135 kilometers to the north of Perth in Australia. Although the end result was true, they ended up at Moore River Settlement, the way they got there was quite different than what we see in the movie. The path the movie shows is pretty much Constable Riggs' car to a truck that drops the girls off at the settlement. In reality, those would have been the caps on the ends of the trip. In between, the girls rode a ship along the coast of Western Australia, all the while marveling at the sights and sounds of places and things they'd never seen. Even though being taken away from their families was a horrible and scary thing, There were still young girls who were in awe of much of the world outside what they'd known up to that point. Their curiosity got the better of them, and for lack of a better term, one might say their trip to Moore River was quite pleasant. That would change once they got there. Now, the movie doesn't talk about the Moore River settlement much at all, but that was a real place. Let's fill in some backstory that the movie skips. Moore River got its name from a man named George Moore, who was the first European to discover the area. He named the river after himself in 1836, and it wasn't until 80 years later that a settlement was built near the river. That's 1916, by the way. That's when the Moore River Native Settlement, as it was officially called, started in a way that might seem as innocent as ever. It was originally built to be a farm. That 
basically that farm would provide jobs for Aborigines while simultaneously bringing the families in so the kids could get an education. The idea was that the adults would work on the farm, there would be a hospital and school for the kids. Doesn't sound too bad, right? But as the settlement was established, those original ideas turned out to be nothing more than a cover. The children at Moore River were not the children of the adults. The adults there were ones deemed as troublesome, so the government could keep an eye on them. Basically, it was a prison camp without the name. As the years dragged on, conditions in the camp deteriorated. People were forced into the camp. There was hardly enough food to go around for the inmates. Well, they didn't call them that, of course. And by the time our story takes place in the 1930s, things were downright horrible. Back in the movie, there's no indication of time, but soon after we see the three girls arrive at Moore River, a girl named Olive tries to run away. She's caught by a tracker named Moodoo. He's played by David Golpillo in the film. After Olive is brought back to the camp, she's placed in a small room that Nina, another one of the girls telling Molly what's going on, calls the boob. Going in behind her is the camp's overseer, Mr. Neal. He's carrying a whip. We don't see what happens inside the small room, but Olive's screams make it pretty clear what's happening. That's not true. Well, sort of. Olive was not a real girl, at least not one that I could find any documentation of being there at the same time as Molly, Daisy, and Gracie. While the specifics of these scenes aren't true, they're really more of a composite scene of what life was like for the three girls after they arrived at Moore River. So even though the movie doesn't indicate timing, it was on July 26, 1931, when the three girls set sail on a ship to head to the settlement at Moore River. They arrived about a week or so later in early August. While they were there, they did witness a girl being locked up in the boob like we saw happen in the movie. It wasn't for running away, though, but rather for swearing at a teacher. Oh, and the kid's name who was locked up there was Violet, not Olive. What the kids called the boob was a small one-room cement block building. It was used as isolation for children who did something wrong. The girl who Molly saw get locked up there, as we learned, her name was Violet, by the way, not Olive, like what we see in the movie. Violet got locked up there for two days for swearing at the teacher, like we heard. The three girls heard other stories then of children who tried to run away getting locked up for a whole week. Speaking of which, we see this moment in the movie when Molly wakes up one day and tells Daisy and Gracie that they're going to go home. There's a storm in the distance, and Molly says that they can use that to cover their tracks so they won't get caught. As the rest of the children head to the church for a service, instead of joining everyone else like she's been asked to do after disposing of the waste bucket, Molly leads the three girls away from Moore River. The basic gist of that is true, but there's some changes. Let's start with the weather. There wasn't a massive storm off in the distance like we saw in the movie. It was raining, but it was more of a drizzle than a downpour. The rest of the children weren't going to the church for a service. At least, that's what I'm assuming it was in the movie, because when we see it happening, we see everyone singing a song in the church. Instead, Molly and the two others purposely lagged behind to empty the bucket while the rest of the children left for school. The movie doesn't really mention how much time is passing, but Molly, Daisy, and Gracie ran away the day after they arrived. Once they had the chance, the three girls made their way toward home. 
Now, another difference between the movie and real life was that the plan all along was to find the rabbit-proof fence. That's how they were going to find home. Find the rabbit-proof fence and follow it to Jigalong. Oh, and remember earlier when we learned that there wasn't a storm off in the distance to cover their tracks? That's an important point because while there was a tracker at Moore River who found other children who had run away, the character of Moodoo that we see in the movie is an entirely fictional one. And with that, you probably get a good idea of how accurate the specifics are for some of the scenes that we see where Moodoo is tracking the three girls very closely. I say specifics because even though Moodoo wasn't real, his character was more of a composite character. Not necessarily all at the same time, but there were many people who were trying to find the three missing girls. In the movie, we see these efforts to recover the girls come from Mr. Neville himself back in Perth. And that's true. As the chief protector of Aborigines in Western Australia, it was Mr. Neville who ordered policemen to try to find them. Heading back into the movie, there's a scene where we see Molly sneaking into a chicken coop to steal some eggs. She gets caught by a woman living in a nearby house, and after coaxing out of Molly that she's not alone, the three girls come to the house. There, the woman gives them food and coats to combat against the cold nights. That's true, but it didn't happen how the movie shows. You see, as the girls were traveling, they got, understandably, really hungry. They did their best to find food here and there. For example, they did stumble upon a man who gave them some matches so they could manage to kill and cook some rabbits. But there was only so much that they could find. Probably the closest to what we saw in the movie happened when they found a farmhouse, and it was Daisy and Gracie who approached it. There wasn't a chicken coop. The plan wasn't to steal eggs. The plan was always to approach the house and ask for food. And it worked. The woman, a woman named Mrs. Flanagan, asked Daisy and Gracie to call Molly to come too. She knew about the three girls already from news reports. The three girls ate until they'd been filled, and then filling some brown paper bags with food, Mrs. Flanagan sent the three girls on their way. What the girls didn't know at the time is after they left, Mrs. Flanagan decided to call Mr. Neal back at Moore River. She seemed to think it was what's best for them. And, as horrible as the conditions were at Moore River, I can kind of understand Mrs. Flanagan's position. After all, it's not likely she knew the conditions were that bad there at Moore River. All she knew was that three girls were out in the wilderness. They certainly couldn't last that long alone out there. Calling the authorities was the right thing to do, in her mind. Oh, and it was in this scene, according to the movie, that Molly gets the idea to follow the rabbit-proof fence. Well, as we already learned, that part isn't true. Molly had the idea to follow the fence before they left Moore River. But Mrs. Flanagan did help point them in the right direction after Molly told her they were planning on using the rabbit-proof fence to get to Jigalong. That's information that Mrs. Flanagan likely relayed when she reported their position. As a little side note, the rabbit-proof fence, we haven't really talked about that itself, but it was built between 1901 and 1907. The purpose of the fence, as the name implies, was to keep rabbits out of Western Australia's farmland. You see, rabbits are not native to Australia. They're one of the animals the British brought with them. Before long, rabbits thrived. They grew to be a problem for farmers, and so the fence was built to try to keep them out. As the movie mentioned at one point, there's actually three different fences. The number one fence stretches from the northern coast of Australia 
all the way to the southern coast. As you can probably guess, the number one fence was the first one built. That really didn't solve the problem, though. So they built the number two fence on the western side of the number one fence. And then finally, the number three fence was added. That one runs east-west instead of north-south, like the number one fence. Overall, the three fences are about 2,023 miles long. That's about 3,256 kilometers. Simply put, it was a massive undertaking. It provided a lot of jobs in the area, both for the building of the fence and the maintenance of it. People would have to go up and down the fence to mend it when it break due to weather, animals, or really anything else that would break a fence in the wilderness. Back in the movie, there's a scene where we hear Nina reading from the paper to the remaining children in the dormitory at Moore River. As she reads, the children add their own commentary. Starting the article, Nina says, The chief protector of the Aborigines, Mr. A. O. Neville. And then the children interject, Devil! Nina laughs, continuing, Is concerned about three native girls aged 8 to 14 who, a month ago, escaped from the Moore River settlement. This time, the children cheer. Yay! The article finishes up with an interesting mention of the only thing the authorities being able to find of the girls is a rabbit, which the girls tried to eat. That article is real, although, interestingly, there were some details changed in the movie. For example, the real article says the girls were aged 8 to 15, not 14, and there's no mention of them escaping a month ago, the real article says a week ago. And perhaps calling it an article is a bit much. It was no more than a couple of paragraphs. This was published on August 11th, 1931 in the News and Notes section of the West Australian paper out of Perth. Missing Native Girls The Chief Protector of Aborigines, Mr. A. O. Neville, is concerned about three Native girls ranging from 8 to 15 years of age who, a week ago, ran away from the Moore River Native Settlement, Mogumber. They came in from the Nulagine District recently, Mr. Neville said yesterday, and, being very timid, were scared by their new quarters, apparently, and fled in the hope of getting back home. Some people saw them passing New Norcia when they seemed to be making northeast. The children would probably keep away from habitations, and he would be grateful if any person who saw them would notify him promptly. We have been searching high and low for the children for a week past, added Mr. Neville, and all the trace we found of them was a dead rabbit which they had been trying to eat. We are very anxious that no harm may come to them in the bush. As for the mention of the dead rabbit, that's hardly enough details in the article to know for sure what Hitz were really referring to other than it being a dead rabbit, but there was an incident where Gracie killed a rabbit. She was scolded by Molly, who reminded Gracie that they didn't have any way of making a fire so they couldn't cook the rabbit. This was before they got the matches to be able to do that. Hungry and frustrated and disappointed, Gracie threw the rabbit to the side after failing to find a way to gut the animal. Going back to the movie, probably one of the closest calls happens when the girls find another Aboriginal woman doing laundry. She remembers being in Moore River and wants to help the girls. Mavis is her name. She tells the girls to stay out of sight for now, but she'll return with food, and then they can stay the night with her. The next scene we see is the girls in Mavis's servants' quarters. It's a building detached from the farmhouse. The three girls are laying in the bed when someone comes in. It's not Mavis. It's a white man. 
who we find out later is named Mr. Paul Evans. He takes off his boots, pants, and starts to get into the bed when he pulls back the covers and sees the three girls. Shocked, he grabs his boots, pants, and rushes out the door. The girls are about to leave when Mavis comes in. Please, if you leave, he'll come back. He won't say anything. The three girls decide to stay with Mavis that night until, in the dead of the night, they're woken up by the sound of a car. When it arrives, Mudu and some policemen get out. Mavis wakes up the three girls, and they just barely make it to the brush before Mudu and the policemen arrive at the servants' quarters. None of that is true. As far as I could tell, Mavis was not a real person. The girls never befriended a servant who was forced to sleep with her boss, owner, or whatever they called it at the time. We can get a sense for what's going on between Mavis and Mr. Evans in the movie. Even the man, Mr. Evans, isn't someone who showed up in my research at all. Of course, that's a common name. So while that particular story is tough to verify, that doesn't mean the three girls didn't have some close calls. Probably one of the closest calls was another scene in the movie where we see the three girls become two. According to the movie, Gracie finds out that her mom is in Waluna, so she decides to try to find her by taking a train there. Molly and Daisy advise her against it, but she insists. So they split up for a few hours. Finally, Molly and Daisy decide to go back for Gracie. They find her sitting alone at a train station. Just as they get her attention, a vehicle appears. It catches up to Gracie, and out hops a policeman who, helped by another man on a bike, snatch Gracie and put her into the backseat of the car. As the car drives away, Gracie looks out as Molly and Daisy watch on helplessly from behind a pile of railroad ties. After she's gone, Molly buries her head in the dirt before letting the tears flow. The end result is true, but that's not exactly how it happened. It is true that Gracie found out her mom was in Waluna, and as far as I could tell, she actually was at the time. After Gracie was taken, her mom was so fed up by her husband's inaction at taking Gracie away, she packed up and moved to Waluna. She believed that because her husband was white, he could have done more than he did, and since he did nothing, that's probably true. So after hearing that's where she was, Gracie decided to go there instead of Jigalong. It was probably a mixture of longing for home and being exhausted and tired of walking, but Gracie made up her mind that the best way to do that was to go to a nearby train station in Mikathera and hop a ride to Waluna. Molly and Daisy tried their best to change her mind. It didn't work. Like the movie showed, for a while, Molly and Daisy continued on without Gracie. But they never turned back for her, like we saw in the movie. But then again, Gracie was not caught at the train station like we saw in the movie either. In truth, she took the train to Waluna. When she got there... Her mom was nowhere to be found. Turns out, she was not in Waluna anymore. Unfortunately, it was here where Gracie was recognized as being one of the runaways. She pretended to be a girl named Lucy from Jigalong, but it didn't work. On Neville's order, she was taken back to Moore River. As the movie comes to a close, we see Molly and Daisy finally making it home. There are tears of joy as they make their way back to Jigalong, to their mother, Maud. We see Mr. Neville dictate a letter that suggests they don't have the funds to keep pursuing the children. At some point, perhaps they'll apprehend them, but for now, the chase is off. It's a happy ending for the children. And that's true. 
we don't really know for sure what the exact moments were like when Maud saw her daughter for the first time since she was forced to leave. I think it's safe to say there probably were plenty of tears, happy tears. As for the mentions in the movie of not having the funds to pursue them, again, that's true. I'm sure they could have come up with them if they really wanted to, but Mr. Neville wasn't too happy about all the extra costs his department had incurred in trying to recapture the girls. In his mind, no doubt, he thought he was doing the girls a service by trying to incorporate them into white culture, even if it was as servants. At the end of the movie, we hear Molly's voiceover as she explains the trip took nine weeks. After arriving home, they hid in the desert. She grew up and had two girls of her own. Later, she was taken back with her kids to Moore River, where she made the trip yet again from Moore River to Jigalong. Amazingly, that's true. That journey that Molly, Daisy, and Gracie took in 1931 lasted nine weeks, like the movie says. They left in August, arrived in October. That's the same month Gracie was recaptured, too. While their trip wasn't a straight line and the three children didn't exactly track their path, the trek from Moore River to Jigalong is roughly 1,000 miles away. That's about 1,600 kilometers a combination of Mr. Neville's department running low on funds and Maud taking her family into hiding in the desert helped keep them out of government hands for quite some time. Nine years later, Molly had surgery in Perth for appendicitis. Her two daughters at the time went with her, and afterward the three were taken to Moore River. Molly asked if they could return home, but they were not allowed to leave. So, on January 1st, 1940, Molly took Annabelle, the youngest of her two children, along with her as she walked the same route she took as a child herself. A few months later, she arrived safely in Jigalong with Annabelle. Molly's other daughter, Doris, stayed at Moore River. She didn't see her mom again until 1962 when she tracked Molly down. It was then that Doris Pilkington Garimara decided to tell her mom's amazing story, which led to the book Follow the Rabbit-Proof Fence that the movie was based on. Sadly, Gracie never saw Jigalong again. She married, having six children before passing away in 1983. Molly and Daisy, on the other hand, lived out the rest of their days in Jigalong. In January of 2002, a truck arrived in Jigalong for the two girls. This truck wasn't going to take the girls away, though. Out hopped some workers who blew up a screen and hooked up the truck's projector, and it was then, in their hometown of Jigalong, that Molly and Daisy watched their very first movie, the world premiere of Rabbit Proof Fence. This episode of Based on a True Story was written and produced by me, Dan Lefebvre. If you want to learn more about Molly, Daisy, and Gracie's amazing journey across Western Australia, I'd recommend reading Molly's daughter's book. That's the one that the movie is based on we just talked about called Follow the Rabbit Proof Fence. I'll make sure to add links to that book and some more resources to help you start digging into the true story yourself over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. As a refresher... Here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, Gracie didn't return to Jigalong with Molly and Daisy. Number two, Molly and Daisy were at the Moore River settlement for years before they escaped. Number three, Molly walked from Moore River to Jigalong not once, but twice in her lifetime. 
Did you find out which one is a lie? The lie is... Number two. As we learned, the three girls left Moore River the very next day after they arrived. They wasted no time in realizing they didn't want to stick around at that place. And so, our story today comes to an end. If you don't have any more episodes to listen to, I'd recommend picking up the audiobook version of Follow the Rabbit Proof Fence to listen to next. Before we wrap up, I just want to say a quick thanks to everyone who requested this movie. I'd never seen this movie or even heard of this story before researching for this episode. So if you're one of those who made the many requests that came through for this movie, thank you. If you've got a movie you'd like to see covered, you can always send along any requests over at the show's home on the web, basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Once again, that's basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon.